You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, we're in Acts, Acts chapter 4. We're we're moving through Acts. We're not going to get through Acts before we have to take a break for the uh, the holiday-themed series, but uh, that's okay. We're, we're just moving through. Uh, let me give you a little immediate context, right? Peter and John had, uh, been on their way to the temple, had healed a lame man um, in the name of Jesus. Their reward was to be arrested, uh, tossed in jail for a night, uh, and then dragged the next morning before the ruling council in Jerusalem. Uh, there they were questioned, They were ordered not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They were threatened, and then they were finally released. That's where we left off last time. And now what we're going to do is follow Peter and John to see what they do right after they're released. Okay? Acts 4, starting at verse 23. We're going to read through verse 35. Given the longer readings with narrative historical narrative like this, I'll have you stay seated, and it's in the bulletin for you if if you want to follow along. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Sovereign Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing, so by your spirit, please enable me now to communicate to my friends, my brothers and sisters here, and to communicate to my own heart the truth of your word so that we together might live it and be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Have you ever been threatened? The novelist uh, Salman Rushdie has lived an incredible 34 years uh, under uh, a fatwa calling for his death issued by the supreme ruler of Iran just a couple of months ago, after 34 years of living under that fatwa, someone tried to make good on it uh, by stabbing Rushdie during a public speech. He barely survived and now continues to live under the threat of that fatwa. I know at least one person here at New Life who, along with his family, has been threatened because of his testimony about Jesus. Threats aren't fun. Uh, They shake you up. They cast a shadow over your life. You start living life with sort sort of with one eye looking over your shoulder, right? As as we rehearsed, right, we know that Peter and John were threatened uh, by uh, the the ruling council. The ruling council, the Sanhedrin, these were powerful men who could make good on their threats. These were not empty threats. We don't know what the threats were. Luke just says they were threatened. And then threatened again. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't take too much imagination to, to, to think what they said, right? These, when you think that these are the same men who were behind the killing of Jesus. So it's not hard to imagine that they must have said something like, uh, you saw what we did to Jesus. You better think twice before preaching again in his name. Right? You could just... Yeah, something like that had to have been communicated. That's scary, right? That's unsettling. It shakes you up. Well, this account, I, I, I submit to you, uh, gives you and me a gospel blueprint for facing threats. And not just threats, because not all of us you know, are, are, are threatened. But in a way we are. I mean, we're threatened by, if we're not threatened by a person like Peter and John were, we're threatened by circumstances, right? We're, we, we face dangers and troubles and problems. Uh, and this, this, is a, this provides a gospel blueprint for facing all of those things. And there are three parts to this blueprint. Um, first, lean on family. Lean on family. Two, make it about God because it already is anyway. And three, live out of faith, not fear. Now I'm going to unpack each one of those. Okay. First, lean on family. Um, what's the very first thing Peter and John do when they get released? Verse 23, right? They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Actually, the the Greek text says something slightly different, literally. It says, they went to their own. It doesn't say friends. It says they went to their own. Um, That expression means more than friends. Uh, That expression, their own, I think most often refers to family, relatives. Uh, It can also refer to comrades in battle. It can refer to a group of disciples following a teacher. And it can refer to friends. And there's no doubt that these people were Peter and John's friends. But 
The reality is that they're more than that, right? These were their brothers and sisters through their shared faith in Jesus, right? These were comrades in a common spiritual battle, right? They were living under a government that wanted to kill them to destroy this cult of Christianity, right? And they were together, disciples of the risen Jesus. So the point here that I want you to see is that as soon as they could, they shared their burden, right? They'd, they'd gotten dragged before this group. They were threatened, and, and, and now that threat becomes a burden. They're, they're carrying this burden, and they waste no time sharing that burden with their fellow Christians. They went to church, first thing, right? Their spiritual family. And were open and transparent, honest about uh, their life, their situation. And in doing that, they, are, they, they did something that Amer- a lot of American Christians don't do, including American Christians here at New Life, right? Um, we, we, we don't do enough, because uh, you know, all too often when we are struggling, right, when, when we're going through a dark time, some kind of trial, some kind of problem, some kind of threat, what we tend to do, many of us, is pull in. Right? Pull in. And, and, and we either hide uh, our, our struggles from others, you're right, come to church, put a smile on, you're not, you're not, you're not sharing that burden with anyone, or you uh, hide yourself from church itself. Right? You stop attending. There's nothing more frustrating for a pastor than to be the last to learn about someone's problem. You know, I get it because I'm, I'm, I'm a, I tend to be a private person. I, there's probably part of my personality would would cause me to to pull in, not share easily. But that's something I think we need to work through. I mean, just because we're shy doesn't mean we, we shouldn't do what, uh, what, 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 what we see here in the Word and, and getting that burden out and getting it shared. Part of it is cultural conditioning, right? We're, we, in America, uh, we, we value individuality. We value self-reliance. So we'll, we'll say things. I hear people say this. I got myself into this. I can get myself out, right? I can handle it. I've heard myself say that. You also, especially these days, may be reacting out of, uh, you're, you're reluctant to share a burden, share problems, because you've had a negative church experience uh, in, in your past. You did, you, tr- you did at one point. You, you, you shared something you were struggling with, and you were judged, you were condemned, you were gossiped about, you weren't really listened to, and it's made you gun-shy. Philip Yancey tells a story about a friend of his who met a prostitute in a, who was in dire financial straits, and he, he asked the prostitute, uh, have you gone to a church for help? And she looked at him like he, he had three heads. A church? A church? Why would I go there? They would just make me feel worse. 
That's not good. Jesus can't be pleased with that. Right? Um, We need to be um, burden sharers. Right? And we need to know the freedom of, uh, of being able to unburden ourselves with our brothers and sisters. You know, you know that's not going to happen here on Sunday morning, but it can happen in a life group. You know, can happen up at the new life house, can happen in my office. Um, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ which includes new life, is not a bunch of spiritual high achievers, you know, coming together like independent contractors. Uh, you know, we see each other, we, we're essentially independent contractors on our way to God. That's not who we are. We're a bunch of weak sinners in need of God's grace, in need of God's forgiveness, in need of God's strength, as we help each other get through the struggles of each day. There's no place in Jesus' church for judgment or gossip or um, proud individualism or easy, breezy answers to tough problems. It's not helpful. We're in this together. We're we're a family. We're comrades in battle. We have each other's back. And I know, I know new life is not perfect because we're made up of sinners. And if, uh, if you failed in this, you know, and if I've failed, I'm repenting. And, you know, let's go back and get it right. So that's the first one. Lean on family. Second, second part of the blueprint for responding when you're shaken by threats and problems is to make it about God because it already is anyway. Um. I say that because we tend to make it about ourselves. Um, what's the very next thing Peter and John do? Right? They've gone to visit their family, the church, and what's the next thing they do? Pray. Right? There it is, verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. I want you to see two things about this prayer. Let's just look at the, gen- the, the prayer in general and what it's focused on. And then let's look specifically at the requests, right? We often just think of prayers as, the, as a list of requests, but it, it's more than that. But they get around to making requests. I want to look at their requests in particular, okay, and what the focus of those requests is. So first, the prayer in general is, do you notice? It's, it really isn't about them. It's radically zeroed in on God, isn't it? Uh, they start, verse 24, with an unusual word. Uh, it's not applied to God very much. Um, it's the word from which we get our English word despot, which has a negative connotation. Uh, this does not have a negative connotation. It's, it, it refers to you know, a very powerful king who has the power to exert his will. Right? And, and the way uh, our, our translation puts it is sovereign Lord. And that's, that's a good translation. That's where they start. Sovereign Lord. Right out of the gate, they recognize that, that as they come before the Lord with their problems, that there is someone higher, bigger, more powerful and stronger uh, than their problems, right? He's the ruling God. Second, 
Uh, continuing in verse 24, they acknowledge the baseline truth of the gospel, and, and I'm thankful to Dr. Jones for this one, that, and the baseline truth of the gospel is that God is the creator. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know, as you face a threat, if you face a problem, if you face a trial, everything you're facing, all the people involved, all, anything involved in the situation that you are facing comes ultimately from the hand of God. He's the creating God. He's the ruling God. He's the creating God. Third, God is, even though he's this massively powerful ruling and creating God, he's not far off. He speaks to us. And he speaks to us through his word. In the Bible, the, these, uh, these uh, Jewish Christians uh, actually, you know, go to Psalm 2. I, they don't have books like, you know. They probably recited that from memory. That's Psalm 2, the first part of Psalm 2. Verbatim, from memory. Uh, and they understand that that's God through Psalm 2, speaking to them, laying out the future that they have seen fulfilled in Jesus. So we have a speaking God. And fourth, and I think most encouraging, notice also that they recognize that that even when Pilate and Herod were doing their worst to Jesus, they were, verse 28, doing nothing more than whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. That's an amazing statement, right? And now apply that to your situation. Apply that to your life. You're going through some dark times. I know, I know. I've talk, I talk with you. There are many of you in this room that are going through some very dark times. Situations to, that beggar the imagination, that don't have any clear human solution. Can you look at that and say, you know what? What's happening here is nothing more than whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. I may not understand it. I may not see the ultimate purpose. But God is good. God is powerful. He's here. He's speaking. And he's working out my life. He's the directing God. So you see what's happening, right? When you, when you pray this way, by focusing their prayer on the character and the actions of God rather than on, oh, Lord, poor me. They're feeding their spirits. They're feeding their minds. And don't you find that to be true in your own experience? I know I do. If When I'm shaken up over something and I go to prayer and I just start a prayer with something like Sovereign Lord, I no sooner utter those words, then my mind and my spirit begins to settle down. Why? Well, because that kind of God focus in, the, in our prayers helps you, helps me to see the world and our problems in, in the light of his reality. Right? He's unimaginably powerful. He's directly involved. He's completely in charge. So that's the prayer in general. 
right? They made it about God, not themselves. Now, look at their requests in particular at verses 29 and 30. Um, I always like to ask, well, uh, instead of focusing first on what they said, they, you ask the question, what didn't they say? You know, they, they could have said a lot of things. What, what did they not say? Well, they did not ask the Lord for a change in their circumstances, did they? They did not ask for what one pastor uh, I, I heard called the, they, they did not ask for the Holy Trinity of American evangelical prayers. Protection, safety, comfort. Nothing wrong with those things. But it is interesting that they didn't ask for them. Nor for a change in their circumstances. Um, Not a word. Instead, what do they do? They ask God to be mindful of the threats that they're facing. And in the context of those threats, give us a boldness to speak the gospel even though it's dangerous even though we've been ordered not to. Make us bold. Awesome. No back down in these people. None. Uh, They're going to do what they have to do, even if it's dangerous. They, They also ask God to continue to heal people. Lord, continue to heal people. Continue to perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus so that people will know that Jesus is Lord. I don't know about you, I find this prayer inspiring and deeply convicting. Um, It's a good reminder to me that following Jesus will sometimes, maybe often, uh, be unavoidably risky, unsafe, uncomfortable. Um, We need to embrace that biblical reality. Remember, we're following Jesus Think about the path that Jesus walked. Jesus says, you're now going to walk my path. He says to you and me, deny yourselves, take up your cross, follow me. Now, look, I'm not saying that there aren't great immediate benefits to being in relationship to the Lord Jesus by faith. That we are, you know, we're not hanging out there uh, in, in, in these fearful circumstances. No, we have, we have great peace, right? We have great comfort, great courage, great power. But we have those things for now in the midst of the threats, in the midst of the problems, in the midst of the trials. Look at it. I mean, God rarely takes the problems away in Scripture. What he does is empower his people to persevere through them and to glorify God as they persevere through uh, their trials. Um, It's going to end someday, right? Protection, safety, and comfort are good things, but we, we will not have those things ultimately in their ultimate sense, until Christ returns. 
and finally establishes his kingdom on earth. Until then, you and I are in a battle, uh, but it's a battle that Jesus at the cross and at the empty tomb has won, and that means that we will ultimately win too. Okay. So, go to your family, make it about God because it already is anyway. And then the third part of the blueprint for responding to threats and problems in your life is to live out of faith, not fear. That's easy to say. And it's even got a little alliteration, so I look like a clever pastor. Live out of faith, not fear. Well, yeah, great, Ted. Show me how. You know, it's so easy to, to live out of fear, to be motivated by fear. It's because fear is uh, so prevalent f- for good reason. And fear is so natural, right? It's sort of part of our, you know, survival instinct that uh, sometimes I find myself acting out of fear and not even knowing it. Right? I'm going through my day, and, and until I slow down and sort of step back and do a little self-assessment, go, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? And the answer is because I'm afraid of something. These early Christians were not, uh, it seems to me, fear-driven. They were faith-driven. Uh, they moved out into the world and, and the central defining reality in their own self-understanding was that I belong body and soul to Jesus by faith. And therefore, I can love him because he loved me. And I can serve him. And I don't have to fear anything because he took my death And he was raised from the dead and promised that he would raise me from the dead. I have nothing to fear. What can flesh do to me? That was how they went out into the world. Well, okay, some of you are not yet convinced. You're saying, okay, well, how do you really know they weren't motivated by fear? Uh, Or, you know, weren't... Well, and... Let me. First, I would put it to you, look at the prayer. Look at the prayer. I mean, there's not a hint of fear in that prayer. But the second piece of evidence that shows me that they weren't full of fear is, that, is because, as we saw at the very end of the passage in verses 32 to 35, that they were radically and generously investing in the church. And that's inconsistent with fear. When, when you're afraid, your hand, my hand, tends to tighten around the money. That reality caused CNN money to develop a, an investing tool that they call the fear and greed index. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but the, but the basic premise is that this index sort of gauges the, the level of fear and greed in society. And when, 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 when things are trending towards fear, that that, that, that index is, is indicating that stock values are going to drop. 
And you, and you say, why? Well, because when people are afraid, they don't invest. They pull in, they hold on, and, and if they're not investing, if they're not buying stocks, demand drops, and therefore so do stock values. But we see it in other con- more, more pedestrian contexts than the stock market, right? You know, we get into a, 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 a bit of a crisis, we get into a situation where there's some fear. Uh, go down to Costco. What, what, what are we doing? We're hoarding, not helping. We're buying toilet paper. And paper towels. And, um, you know, non-perishable food. And ammunition. But these believers uh, weren't hoarding. Right? At a time when you would predict that they would. At a time when you would predict, look, given what they're going through right now, given what they're facing, you know, you really wouldn't expect these people to be overly generous. But they were not hoarding at all. They were generously helping, right? There's nothing forced about this. This was not required by the early church. It was just was something that the Spirit moved in these people that they did. And those that had properties were selling off extra properties, giving the proceeds to the church. Just at a time when you didn't think they'd do it. Um, and it was an amazing testimony to the people around them. To the, in the Greco-Roman world, they were watching these Christians and what they were doing. And it was, they were amazed. See how those Christians love one another. Right? You know, in that investment those believers made back then in Acts 4 is an investment that's still yielding a return, right? Think about it. You and I are their return on investment, right? We're a church. Here we are. Look at this. A full church in San Diego, California, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, 2,000 years separated in time, and yet their investment is still returning. Prophet, you and me. Um, they did that because uh, it says they were filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you, you tend not to be filled with fear. And when the Spirit comes in, the Spirit expel, tends to expel fear. Now, we'll, we'll do our best to bring it back in, but the Spirit expels fear. fear. Paul said in Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, that you have, uh, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And how, having the power and love and self-control of the Holy Spirit today, you and I are not shaken even in these shaky times. You can be fearless witnesses, fearless prayer warriors, fearless lovers of enemies, fearless givers. We're we're told here at verse 31, after they prayed, that the place where they were was shaken. Not unusual. Yes, unusual, but not biblically unusual. 
right? Whenever God showed up in the Bible, there was always a lot, a whole lot of shaking going on, right? It's just yet his his reality, his his presence, his power is such that it gets too close to human beings. To, he gets close to human beings. Gets close to buildings. And things start shaking. I thought about that as I was thinking about this scene. And I, re- I remembered what the writer of Hebrews talked about. He, he wrote a lot about shaking. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, he's reflecting on the Mount Sinai experience and how terrified people were because when God came down on Mount Sinai, the mountain was shaking. Uh, and, um, and the writer of Hebrews uh, in chapter 12 uh, then goes on to say, you know, there's going to be one more time of shaking. And um, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it's that time of shaking is going to be uh, on the last day. And he says, when that happens, uh, everything will be destroyed except that which cannot be shaken. You know what that is? You. You. You've been given an unshakable kingdom. You live in an unshakable kingdom. You can't be shaken. You will not be shaken because Jesus was shaken for you. There was another time that there was a shaking going on, right? On the cross. Matthew talks about it, right? When, the, when Jesus is hanging on the cross between life and death and, and the darkness comes, God is descending and there's a supernatural darkness. What's happening? God is bringing his judgment down on Jesus instead of on you and me. Jesus is carrying your sin, your shame, your guilt, my sin, shame, and guilt. And God is coming down. And as he comes down, not only does it get dark, it starts to shake. And what happens? Temple busts up. The graves bust up, bust open. And it busts Jesus right into his own grave, dead. Dead under the consuming, holy judgment uh, of God. Um, Because Jesus went through that shaking for you, you will never, ever be shaken. You're going to stand today, and you're going to stand on the last day, unmoved undeterred, unafraid. Friends, may that blood-bought reality that Jesus has given you, may that move you and me to faith-driven, fear-expelling, God-glorifying living and obedience. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thanks for your great word here and the work of your spirit in the early church uh, it is inspiring and convicting Lord so speak to our hearts and, and, sh- and, and make it clear what we should do as we follow you expel our fear as we move out in faith we pray in Jesus name Amen you've been listening to Ted Hamilton Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido 
please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.